All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and we are continuing our series in Acts, um, specifically in Acts 2, looking at really what drove the early church. So grab your Bibles and flip over to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses um, 42 through 47. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. We have them distributed around the room. And uh, if you're using one of our Bibles, we're going to page 9. 11, page 911, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. All right, I've been talking about uh, really the values that drove the early church, right? When it says at the beginning in, in verse 42, they devoted themselves. What that means is that these were the values that, that drove them. These are the things that they really held dear and shaped this early fellowship of the church. Uh, and we think it's instructive to us today, right? The same things that drove uh, this early collection of believers in Jesus, Jesus should be the same things that drive us today. If we're going to experience what they experienced, we need to be driven by the same things that drove them, right? And so there were five core values in the early church that we've taken a look at. Um, they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, right? They were, they were devoted to truth. How does, how does the truth of the Scripture intersect the reality of my life? Right? How, does, how does what this say not just have an intellectual uh, interest to me, but how does it actually impact my life? Right? They were devoted to the fellowship, uh, to community, to life on life, sharing life, sharing needs and sharing joys uh, in radical uh, countercultural ways, ways that were, that were driven by the Spirit leading people together as opposed to people simply being drawn together around a common interest. Uh, they were devoted to the breaking of bread, which was um, a phrase that, that indicated worship, right? They called the breaking of bread was a, a meal, a love feast where they would come together, but, but it was how they honored and, and observed communion, okay? What, what we do in the elements up front, um, they did it in this, this uh, slightly different fashion, but it was still coming together around the body and the blood of Christ to celebrate who he was and, and worship, right? They were devoted to the prayers, uh, which was a, a, do, a devotion to personal and, and corporate prayer, and, and then they met daily in the temple, uh, Solomon's portico, where they would be um, interacting with the culture at large, meeting people um, that didn't believe the same things they believed, and being able to interact with them and share their faith and discuss with them why it was important. So we've talked about truth and community. The first two weeks of our series, we took a look at, at these two values. Uh, worship is up next, uh, the breaking of bread. And uh, I've decided that we're going to be taking them out of order. Uh, so today we're actually going to be talking about the prayers. Um, so we're jumping ahead a little bit. We'll come back to worship um, actually at the Wildy service. I decided that's the one I wanted to, to focus on there. Um, the early church was devoted to prayer. Um, I know as soon as I begin this, some people are like, oh yeah, I love talking about prayer. And some people are like, oh no, I don't, 
I don't even get it. Um, prayer's weird, you guys. Let's just kind of be upfront and honest about it. Um, every Christian knows prayer is important, right? We know it's all over the scripture. We're commanded to do it. There's examples of it happening. But there are very few Christians that I know that would actually call themselves good prayers, right? And even fewer that I would actually believe. Um, most of us struggle with prayer. Most of us struggle, right? If we're honest, it's because it's kind of weird um, and it's hard, right? It's a, it's a discipline. It's and sometimes difficult. <laughs> and, uh, and it is kind of, I mean, it's, let's not get past the weird part. Um, I saw a comic on Facebook by a guy named Adam Ford. He's an online guy who does online comics, um, Adam 4D, which are pretty funny. Um, but he did one about what prayer was like, and it grabbed my attention. So um, imagine if you walked into a conversation um, where one person is talking to another person like people pray to God, right? So somebody who's not a believer in Christ stumbles in and listens to the way we pray. It's going to sound fairly awkward. It would be like me talking to Lauren, like, like um, um, Lauren, human, um, thank you for being um, just so wonderful, so um, wonderful and, and elegant and beautiful. Um, you're just so awesome and and um, human, I'd, I'd really like tacos for dinner. I just, I just really like tacos. So could you make me tacos, Lauren, human? I, I know I don't deserve them, human, but I'd really just like tacos, you know, if it's in your will. In Lauren's name, amen, right? It's, it's, it is weird, right? I mean, it's the way we talk to God is, 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 is weird, especially for somebody who's not used to the whole Christianese thing, right? Um, and it's, it's disorienting. So I want to admit it up front. It can, be, it can be weird talking to somebody you can't see, right? Who hasn't felt awkward trying to pray at one point or another? Having a conversation with somebody that you can't see and uh, more than likely you're not hearing back from. Um, but here's the thing I want you to hear. Few experiences are more transformational to the Christian experience than learning to thrive in prayer. Not, not just doing it as a duty, right? Not just getting the practice down. But I'm talking about learning to thrive in prayer. So I want us to see this morning where we often get on our own way with prayer, how we often even do it badly. Um, I want us to get some of the unnecessary weirdness out of prayer, some of the guilt about not doing it enough um, or doing it right, <clears throat> and see if we can get more excited about it. Now, my own experience with prayer um, has been an interesting journey. It's been a real challenge. Um, and, and my journey, I think, highlights many of our experiences as far as highs and lows. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Prayer wasn't something that was modeled for me. Um, and so, before I became a believer, it's not that I never prayed, but when I did, it was usually when I had no other options, right? There's an old saying that says there are, there are no atheists in foxholes, right? When, when the urgency level is high, people are much more inclined to pray. When they have no other options, when they need divine assistance, when they need divine intervention, when they're afraid of what's happening, right? So in my life, that meant when generally when consequences were coming for actions I had performed, right? Uh, when things were happening bad, that's when I was likely to pray. And, and even more, the ones that I really remember 
Um, honestly, were, were times when I saw things happening to people I loved, like my brother, and, and I was afraid that he was like going to get hurt or, or something bad was going to happen. And those are the times that, that I was more than likely going to pray. The challenge was that those were desperation prayers. I didn't really know who I was praying to. It was more like shouting into the darkness than, than having a conversation. Um, and it usually alternated between, between pleading and bargaining. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, just please, 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 please. And all right, if you do this, this is what I'll give you, right? I'll, 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 I'll try to give you something to move your hand, right? But when I became a believer, everything changed, right? When I became a believer, it was different. It was much more personal, right? I actually believed God existed, not just God existed, but, but he had a personal interest in me, right? He sent Jesus to die for me and rise again for me so that I could be forgiven. Um, so it was very personal. He wasn't just a concept. He was a person and a person who was interested in me. And my faith in God actually compelled me to pray, right? In, in the early days of, of being a believer, man, I wasn't praying because it was duty. I wasn't praying because someone told me I had to. It was the natural outgrowth of, of my faith, right? Nobody told me when I first believed, man, you should go pray. I just did it, right? It was something that just kind of flowed um, out of me. Now, it was still awkward, um, but I was compelled to do it anyway. In fact, my first prayer was horribly awkward. <laughs> uh, I remember it vividly. Um, I really didn't even know how to start. So I remember laying in my room. I had my face in the pillow, um, and I was, I was just overwhelmed, and I didn't even know how to start. And so I started, I mean, literally, I was like, Lordy, Lordy, Lordy. And then I'm like critiquing in the back of my head, like, did you really just say Lordy, Lordy, Lordy? Did you really just start praying like that? And then I'm like, I am just a pile of. Uh, nobody had told me yet that God likes certain words more than others, and so I was just communicating in a way that was very honest uh, and real to how I felt. And, and, uh, and so that's where I started, and then I went to you, you love me. But you love me. That was it, man. I was in tears. That was the end of my prayer. I'm just like, thank you. Thank you. Um, it ended with me just crying, just overwhelmed. And so that awkwardness was just real and honest and blunt and personal. And, uh, and, and it was the beginning of my, my really, my prayer journey. And, and after that, um, man, I was compelled to get into Scripture. I just started reading the Bible. I wanted to find out everything I could about God and, and about myself, and I would get into the Scripture, and, and I would find myself praying while I read. It just kind of naturally happened, right? I'd be reading this stuff, and, and I'd find myself just kind of like, that doesn't make any sense. Lord, why doesn't that make any sense? Why? That sounds stupid. Why, who are, what, right? And, and oh my goodness, that tells me something. You know, it's like, so you just end up talking to God as you're, as you're sitting in the Word. I didn't realize uh, just how life-changing that would be. Nobody taught me to do that. It just kind of happened. I was getting into the Word, and I was praying about it, and, and it's this thing called rumination, which is a beautiful word. Rumination is a, a word that means to chew the cud. It's this idea that, that cows would chew the food, swallow it down. They have multiple stomachs. They'd spit it back up. They'd chew it some more, swallow it down, spit it back up, chew it some more. That was what was happening, right? I didn't set out to memorize Scripture. Very few times in my life have I ever set out to say, I'm going to memorize Scripture. It has happened. Usually what ends up happening, though, is, is I just sit in it. I read it, I start praying about it, I go back, I read it some more, I'm thinking about it, I'm processing it, and I'm calling it back to mind, and, and there's this like interchange between me and the Word and praying, and, uh, and it was life, it was, it was life-giving, right? It was vibrant. 
what ended up happening is I continued on my journeys as I found that eventually my theology kind of got in the way of my prayer life. You know what I'm saying? Like I started discovering as I was reading that God knows everything, right? And that he's in control of everything. And that he actually knows what I'm going to ask for before I ask. And that there's this thing called the decree of God, right? That he knows the end from the beginning and, and, and nothing takes him off guard and nothing can derail his plan. And I'm like, that's awesome, but why am I praying? Why would I pray to a God who already knows I'm going to pray? Why would I ask for what I already hear? He knows he's decided he's going to give, right? Why do I need to pray if God knows everything and is in control? I kept doing it because the Bible tells me to, and, and there's a kind of that dutiful sense, but what ended up happening is, is I stopped wrestling in prayer. You know what I'm saying? Like I still did it, but I came a little bit detached, right? There was no wrestling with it. There was no like, like, like engaging. It was more like, all right, you already know what you're going to do, but I'm going to ask anyway because you told me to, and then I'll just wait and see what you're going to do anyway because you were going to do it anyway, right? So it's like, I'm not quite sure that my prayers do anything. I'm not sure that it means a lot, but, but I'll stay involved. Um, as I continued, there were other things that got in the way of my prayer life. Uh, comfort, when things started going well, I just didn't feel like I needed to pray that much. You know what I'm saying? Like the urgency level in my life dropped. And so as the urgency level dropped, the, the compelling need to pray dropped, right? If you feel like you're doing fine, if you feel like you've pretty much got it under control, if you feel like things are, are moving smoothly, you don't feel a lot of need. And if you don't feel a lot of need, you, you can become fairly self-content and self-confident, and during those times, it's hard to, to feel motivated to pray, right? In a crisis, man, the urgency level goes through the roof, and, and often we, we find ourselves praying like crazy. But comfort got in the way. And if I'm honest, the reality is I had some unanswered prayers that got in the way. There were some things I wanted, some things that I really wanted, and I prayed about it. Right? And I knew what the Scripture said. I had read those verses. If you pray that God will pick up this mountain and move it, He'll do so if you have enough faith. And I'm like, all right, I believe, man. So, I, Lord, I want this to happen, important things, things that were really important to me, not just, not just personal comfort things, but things that were really important and I thought would be important to God. And He didn't answer, at least not the way I thought He would, not the way I was asking. And so what ended up happening is it made me a little bit cynical. I didn't realize it. It's not like I was watching it going, okay, my, my cynicism meter is rising. It just was happening. I started getting detached. And my prayers became vague requests, right? I started getting less and less specific. And, uh, and, and the timeline became more and more vague, right? Um, because if I asked too specifically with too clear of a timeline, it was too obvious when he didn't answer. And so my prayers became vague and, and, and fairly weakly offered, and, and I always threw the caveat on the end. If it's your will. If it's your will. It was my way of kind of giving God an out. And honestly, it was more of a statement of my cynicism than of my faith, if I'm honest. It was my way of saying, I'm going to ask for this, but I really am not sure you're going to give it to me. I'm not even quite sure you're paying attention to me right now. And if you are, I'm not quite sure that, that <laughs> I have any power to sway your hand. Uh, and so if it's your will, you know, it's just one more way to detach myself. 
um, to move into duty instead of um, a real delightful thing. Does this sound familiar to anyone, any of these? I don't think I'm alone. And then I met some friends, some new friends who were charismatics, and they were awesome. I loved them, man. They prayed. Not like the group I was in. The group I was in prayed, but it was kind of that formal, detached, quiet, tame stuff. Man, these charismatics, man, they prayed. They were bold. They were loud. Like, they were engaged. Like, they got together, and when they prayed, man, it was like praying, man. It was like they were on their knees, right? They weren't just like quietly, politely sitting in the corner uttering, if it's the Lord's will. I mean, they are on their knees, like pleading with God. And I'm like, wait, I, there's a piece of me that relates with that. I think I used to be like that. I want some of that back, right? That, that engagement, right? And they would pray for crazy stuff, man, bold stuff. They're praying for healing. They're praying for money. They're praying for uh, needs to be met, bills to be paid, people to be, be delivered and, and saved, specific prayers, Time-related prayers, not self-protective prayers, not the kind of prayers that we let God get off the hook, let ourselves get off the hook. They were acting like they actually believed God was listening and involved and interested. It was bold. And it woke something up in me, and I was like, whoa, I, I need some of that. But as I started digging in, there were all kinds of things that made me really nervous. Right? They talked a lot about faith and the importance of faith, but the more I dug in, at least I'm not condemning, I'm not trying to, just, there was something off, man. They talked a lot about faith, but in the end, they were really talking about having faith in their faith. Um, like if you prayed for something really boldly, very clearly, and you didn't get it, the response would be, well, I don't know if you really had faith. I don't know if you really believed you were going to get it. I don't know if you really believed that God was going to give it to you, right? So you better work on having more faith right? Instead of really trying to have more faith in God, they ended up having sessions where they tried to have more and more faith in their, their faith. And there's a lot of positive self-talk and a lot of, of, of um, kind of, I don't know, Jedi mind tricks, right? I have the faith to find the droids I'm looking for, right? It was a sense that, that I was going to talk myself into having the faith necessary, Right? If, if you didn't get what you wanted, sometimes it was hidden sin in your life, right? So there seemed to be this always this witch hunt for sin because if God didn't give you what you wanted, you were getting in the way somehow, right? You asked and you didn't get it. So maybe there's sin in your life. <clears throat> I had one guy legitimately tell me that all sugar was sin and the amount of sugar in my house was the measure of the amount of sin in my life. And, um, and I said that may be an accurate representation. I'm sure I have as much sin in my life as I have sugar in my house, but I don't think that's why God's not answering my prayers. Um, Because here's the thing. If you ask God to move a mountain and he doesn't move the mountain, there's got to be something wrong with you. You either don't have enough faith or, or God's not happy with you right now because you're in sin, right? As I dug in, what I found were people riddled with doubt and self condemnation, and they were hindered because they couldn't even admit it, right? Because because that was negative talk, that was anti faith. They had to speak the faith that they wanted into existence. So here's the thing: I loved the boldness, loved the boldness, but not the manipulative nature of how they viewed faith or how they saw prayer working. Here's the problem. 
with what happened to my prayer life. I started to see prayer subtly, but I started to see prayer as a way to get God to do something. That became the primary purpose of prayer, as a way to try to get God to do something. God was a vending machine, and He was full of power and health and money and, and, and blessing and security for my kids and prosperity for my ministry and, and whatever it was, right? And so I'm just trying to figure out how do I push the right button to get the right thing to fall out? How do I get the right thing, right? So if I press this button and that falls, oh, all right, it was God's will, right? All right. At first, my theology told me, whatever wants to fall will fall, so why does it matter if I can push the buttons? And then my friends told me, no, there's, there's a secret way to push the buttons. Here's the secret way, right? Here's the thing. One ended with cynicism. The other ended with frustration and self-condemnation. Neither one of them were the right path. See, the problem wasn't with God, and the problem wasn't with prayer. The problem was with how I was approaching it. All right, Jesus talked about this. And so we're going to flip over. We're going to take a look at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6. So grab your Bibles and flip over to Matthew 6, okay? Because I think it's really important. I, I bounced, uh, this is probably the third sermon I wrote this week on this. Um, there's an amazing amount that I would love to say about prayer. Um, this is where I landed. And so we're going to unpack a little bit from Matthew chapter 6. It's page 811. In, uh, in our Bibles, but Jesus is, is speaking to his disciples in, um, in Matthew 6. This is a very uh, familiar passage. He's teaching his disciples to pray, and he, it's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Many of you have heard it prayed. We've sung it. One of our songs actually quotes it, um, but I want to take a look at it this morning. And here's what's interesting. He begins, first of all, telling us how not to pray. Okay, take a look at verses 5 through 8, Matthew 6, 5 through 8. He says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Ow, that hurt. Um, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. All right. He starts out by calling out both the Jews and the Gentiles, right? Don't be like them and and don't be like them. The Jewish leaders um, loved public prayer. In fact, it was part of their culture. At certain points in the day, the, everybody stopped and would pray, and, and the Jewish leaders would make sure that when that time hit, they were in some place very public. Like they would plan their, their day around it, so they'd be on a nice street corner where, where everybody could see how pious they were and how holy they were, and they, and they wore their religious garments with all their tassels and, and just made sure that people noticed them and, and just how religious they were. In their culture, um, that was a, a sign of power right? It evoked respect, right? So if you were somebody who was a Pharisee or had this title or could get this recognition, it was something that, that, that just people loved the adulation, right? They loved the fact that people would look at them and go, oh, he's, 
He's one of, he's one of the elite, right? He's one of the, the power sources in the culture. And so they would, they would get out and they would pray very loudly and, and very visibly. And Jesus says, don't do that, right? Don't do that. Do the opposite. Go climb into your closet, <laughs> right, where nobody sees you except you and God, don't make a public show of it. And then he talks about the Gentiles, and he says the Gentiles, the problem with them is they treat it like a, a mystic mantra. They, they have these words. Sometimes they would be these secret um, mystical words that they would just repeat over and over and over, almost like they were mumbling, almost um, like, like just a, a repetition, endless repetition of, of a formula that they thought somehow was going to either annoy God to give them what they wanted or, or somehow break them through to some spiritual plane where they would be able to get what they wanted. So, so they would treat it like this mystical mantra, and he's like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't heap up empty phrases on top of empty phrases. Don't just say a lot of words as if God would be impressed by the number of words you can utter, right? Say real words. Say the truth. Speak simply and, and clearly. Don't, don't, don't think that by the heaping up of your words or using special prayer language, right? Uh, the these and the thous or the, or the King James, you know, that's not going to impress me, man. Keep it simple. Don't be like them. Don't be hypocrites. What made them hypocrites? Is public prayer wrong? Praying where people will see you, is, is, that, is that wrong? I don't think so because we have plenty of examples of it in Scripture. Jesus himself did it. Is it wrong to pray liturgical prayers, right? What I mean by that is pre-written prayers, memorized prayers? Is it wrong to, to, um, to, to instead of just spontaneously making it up in your, in your brain, um, praying something that you've memorized, and in fact, something that you would repeat over and over and over again, right? Something like the Jesus prayer. The Jesus prayer is something that's um, used quite widely. It's very simple. It says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And I have friends who will repeat this prayer dozens of times a day, right? They're just, it's a way for them to recenter their thinking in the middle of their work. It's a way of recentering their thinking in the middle of the traffic jam. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner, right? So they repeat it over and over and over as a way to, to recenter their hearts. See, here's the thing. I don't think there's anything wrong with either one of those practices. See, what makes someone a hypocrite is pretending to do one thing while you're actually doing something else. That's what makes you a hypocrite. When you're pretending to do one thing and you're actually doing something else, when you're putting up a false front. See, these guys weren't praying because they loved God. They weren't praying because they actually wanted to talk to God. They weren't praying because they wanted a deep experience of the presence of God. They were praying because they wanted to use God. They wanted to press the right buttons to get the right things. See, whether they wanted more personal glory or more personal security or more stuff, they saw prayer as a means to an end. It's like a guy who, who learns how to be a womanizer. Right? Guys who learn how to be womanizers are guys that learn how to, to make women feel specific ways. And they do that by acting specific ways. So, so they learn how to, to say things that are complimentary and invite intimacy. They learn how to listen in a way that makes them seem like they're actually interested. They learn how to say things that, that indicate certain levels of commitment. They learn how to go through the motions to produce certain responses in her, but in the end, it has nothing to do with her. It has everything to do with getting something from her. It has to do with using her in a self-centered way 
way, right? The goal isn't to know her. The goal is my pleasure, my will, my agenda. You guys, we do that in prayer. We do that in prayer. And that's what I started doing in my prayer life, which is why it started dying, right? Approaching prayer as a way to get something from God instead of a way to know God. Approaching prayer as a way to to solve a problem as opposed to a way to actually move into intimacy. See, in contrast to this, Jesus tells us how to pray. And and, and that's the part that we call the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going to say up front, I don't think that there's anything wrong with repeating this prayer liturgically. Right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. People will say this prayer liturgically. Um, They memorize it and they say it verbatim. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I don't think that's how Jesus intended it to be used. I think it was more of a model than a method, right? I don't think he was saying, say these words. There's nothing wrong with saying the words. I was saying, instead, here's a model for for prayer, right? Um, This is how you should do it. So let's take a look at the prayer, okay? Kind of unpack it a little bit. He begins by saying, our Father, right? Our Father. Man, I I want you to see just right off the bat how incredibly personal this is. Not, oh, great, gracious, sovereign, omnipotent, transcendent God. He is, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it begins with with our Father. The word Father here, the Greek, pater, um, would be like the Greek version of Abba, the Hebrew the Hebrew word, it's, a, it's what children learn to speak when they first, like, like when we're asking our kids, like, man, say the word, man, dada, dada, come on, don't say mama first, say dada, right? Um, that's kind of the same thing, this sense of pater, it was a way of, of children addressing their fathers. Now, it wasn't completely childish, and that is a little bit different, right? Um, because young adults would call their fathers, older adults would call their fathers pater, and, and even abba, right? It would be more like dad, then daddy, it's English, you know, when you're doing translation, it gets a little bit difficult, but there's different connotations there, aren't they? Daddy is almost childlike. Uh, dad is, is more of an adult relationship, and, and it speaks of a little bit more of, of um, an adult connection. And that's really what we're looking at here, this sense of, of very familiar, but not completely childish. Childlike, but not childish, right? So more like dad than father in our language. Father is very formal in the English language. Um, so it's personal, it's intimate. Now, here's what, it, it would have taken the, the disciples off guard. When he said, look, this is the way I want you to pray. <laughs> Speaking to God, our Father. Um, it's not the way they were used to approaching God. God dwelled in the Jewish mind. God, His glory dwelled in the temple, right? And, and the temple was, a, was a, uh, this, sh- this, this tower of holiness that shadowed, overshadowed the city, and, and, and it reminded them continually that they were separated from God. Because to come to the temple, man, there was a series of outer courts, and, and you could only come so close. And then if you were the Levitical priesthood, you can come a little bit closer. And, and, and if, it was, if you were the high priest, you can go even a little bit closer. But there were, there were danger signs. Man, you don't go past this line. You, God wants you to come close, but, but not that close. And so they were very aware of the holiness of God. The God was a consuming fire. That idea would have been very familiar to them, that he was all light, all brightness, all fire, and, and, and we need to be careful in approaching him. This idea of coming so intimately, honestly, I think would have been unthinkable. The idea of coming with intimate uh, casualness of a family member, our Father. Um, 
If there was anything that the Old Testament sacrificial system taught them and the Old Testament temple taught them, it was that they were sinners and that God was holy. And since they were sinners, they couldn't just come freely into the presence of God. They had to come very, very carefully into the presence of God. But Jesus was pointing them to why he came, to bring forgiveness and reconciliation and to restore intimacy between God and mankind, right? Um, Jesus went, in a sense, in the heavenly realm before the courts of justice, right? He stood in my place. He was my substitute standing before the judgment seat of God, and, and, and he embodied my sin, and he took my penalty as my substitute. He died for me, right? And then he rose again, proving the payment was complete. And when I believe in Jesus, um, I now approach God in a very different way. I no longer come to the throne of judgment. I come to the throne of grace, right? This verse in, in Hebrews 4 um, has always been a deep encouragement to me. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says this, Since then we have a great high priest, Jesus the Son of God, because he was the priest and the sacrifice, and, and he opened the way for me. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, when we approach God as believers, we don't, we don't approach hoping God will like us hoping God will be uh, inclined to listen to us, hoping that, that maybe we've been good enough this week for him to, to be interested in us, or, or maybe I got my act together enough this week for him to, or, or the flip side, you know, I, I sinned this week. He's not going to want to listen to me. I sinned this week. I better not pray because I'm not going to find a warm welcome with God this week, right? That's as if we were coming to the throne of judgment and somehow we could stand before God and say, all right, I earned your favor this week. We come to the throne of grace, which is way better because I'm standing in his merit, not mine, right? I'm covered in Christ, not my success or my failure. And that's continual. That is unending. That is a, 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 a nonstop invitation to intimacy, right? I, I can be in the middle of sinning and come to the throne of grace, I don't have to clean myself up before I come into the house because Christ has already done it. And that's the beautiful thing, right? In fact, one of the most powerful things we can do in the middle of temptation or even right in the middle of sin is come into the throne room of God and say, God, give me grace to help in time of need. I'm weak. I'm hurting. I'm turning to things that aren't you. Well, you, you know what I'm saying? Like we come to a throne of grace. We come to our Father. So we don't approach wondering if our lives are good enough or if we're working the right formula we approach the throne of grace, we approach the open arms of undeserved favor, and we stand in the record and merit of Jesus, and so we approach as family. So we approach, we pray to our Father in heaven. Now, this is corrective for us as well, um, because He's familiar, He's intimate, He's loving, He's close, He is our Father, but He is also transcendent. He is God, right? The creator of heaven and earth, the measure of holiness. He is pure light. He is so pure that he's called an all-consuming fire. Prayer is not a trivial thing, right? In our culture, we don't struggle like the Jews did with seeing God so holy we can't approach. We see him as so familiar that he loses his transcendence, right? That whole Jesus is my homeboy stuff. I don't get it right? We try to Saturday Night Live our approach to God and make everything a joke. Um, he is the measure of all that is beautiful and holy and righteous, 
right? The first century disciples needed to be taught to be more bold in intimacy with God. And I think today we need to be taught to be more respectful, right? Not to approach God with the mindset of a comedy culture where we make fun of everything. See, there is a familiarity and there is an ease in approaching God. And there's even a laughter and a lightness of heart. I don't think God's a killjoy and I don't think God ignores or doesn't get humor. He's the one that created it. But he is our father in heaven. And we do well to remind ourselves that we approach a sovereign, all-powerful God. And we should do it with a joyful reverence. And we see this, in fact, in the first thing Jesus tells us to do. He tells us to say, hallowed be your name. Right? So he tells us who to approach, your Father in heaven. And then first thing he tells us to do is, is say, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is a word that means to set apart as holy. To set apart as something that is uniquely worthy of praise. Right? So when we say, hallowed is your name, we're not just talking about, okay, we've got we to be real careful with saying the word God. We're talking about everything his name represents, that Yahweh, the God of the universe, is, um, is his name, his character is worthy of being set apart for our adulation, for our, our praise, our worship, our love, right? So how do we do this, man? How do we do this? Does that mean we need to start off every prayer like, oh man, God, you're so awesome, right? Is that how we do it? I don't think so. Um, I think it's actually by sitting in God's love for us until we see it as awesome, it's really easy to say, oh, God, you're awesome, while we're distracted by, by 15 million different things, right? Oh, God, you're awesome. We're checking our Twitter account over here. You know what I'm saying? Like, like it means sitting in the love of God to the point where our heart actually awakens to the awesomeness of God. Sitting in the love of God to the point where our heart actually is like, yeah, man, he's, I, he's set apart. He is awesome. He is glorious. He is beautiful. He is powerful. He is, he is all of those things, right? This sense in which our heart actually awakens to the awesomeness of God. So he isn't saying start your prayer by saying nice things about God. He's saying start your prayer by looking at God, pausing long enough in his presence that it actually has an effect on your heart. And your heart is moved by his glory. And that your hard heart is softened once again by his love. I think a lot of times our prayer life uh, is anemic because we never pause long enough not to be distracted. We try to throw it in while we're doing 15 million other things, right? It's prayer is one more thing in an, in a, in an information-driven, um, attention-distracted culture, right? Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram and Snapchat and Netflix and, and, and all the billions of chats that are flowing in, right? It's like, oh God, right? Pausing long enough to actually let the awesomeness of God sink in and produce within us a responsiveness, right? That's what he's saying. Start there. Start by actually entering into the presence of God, considering the character of God, allowing who he is and what he's done to produce within you a response, right? So he's describing where our hearts should be, not the words we should say. And then he goes on and he says, um, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the thing. We are absolutely bent on getting our own will, aren't we? We love to get what we love to get. Let's just be honest. We have a very clear description of how our life's supposed to go and where it's supposed to end and what we're supposed to get in the process, right? <laughs> and so 
to start here is actually a challenge to that. See, by default, we live for our own glory, for our own kingdoms, because we're sinners. And sin is is this, this drug that puts me into this fantasy world where I believe I can be like God. And I should be like God. I should be able to envision the life I want to have and be able to have it, right? Sin is this drug that comes in and, and puts me at the center and my agenda and my glory and, 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 and all of those things. And, and everything that's uh, against me is somehow um, wrong, right? We make our plans. We, we have our way. We want to establish our glory. Prayer is the place we go to reorient our hearts to reality, to wake us up from the deceitfulness of sin. I am not God. You are. And this world is not my home, right? This career is not my life's work. It's not going to define me for all eternity. My family is not the measure of my worth. It's not that those things aren't important, right? Child rearing and raising a family and, and growing in, in, in all, it's, it's all important, but it's not the measure of who I am, nor is it the end of who I will be. This kingdom, this place, this world is not my home. God, your kingdom is. There is something eternal, right? This kingdom of man, this broken and fallen world is, is a broken place that, that, is, that you've broken into to deliver me from. This present place is not all there is, and it's not even the realest part of what is. See, part of praying is asking God to reorient our vision, to give us a far-seeing wisdom. So, so we're not just looking at what's right in front of our face, what's happening in the next 24 hours or the next week or the next year or the next decade. We're looking and seeing an eternal perspective because we're part of an eternal kingdom. And when we do that, we can see what's real. And we see what's worth living for. It's corrective to our pride. And it is comforting to our fear. See, I don't stand on my own glory. And my security isn't found in what I can or can't accomplish in this passing age. I am a sojourner here. I live uh, as, a, as a, a citizen of a foreign country. My home is, is in the kingdom of Jesus and that kingdom is, is, is already here and it's already won, but it's not yet fully realized. And so I get to taste part of it and part of me is yearning for the real, full, full realization of that kingdom when, when Jesus will return and, and establish his kingdom on earth. It quiets my pride and it also comforts my fear, right? This is a season of fear. Election seasons are always seasons of fear because um, the propaganda machine is running, And the propaganda machine has two goals. One, to get everyone aligned around common values and commonly aligned around common enemies. In order to do that, they stir up fear, right? Anxiety. See, when I'm vexed by politics or or more than that, when I look at systemic racism or I look at economic injustice or I, I look at all the things that are so broken in this world, I need prayer. Prayer helps align my heart with the true solution. That the true solution isn't isn't voting the right person into into office or winning the right argument on Facebook or or somehow being able to 
persuasively make my case for what I deeply believe in. That's not my hope. It's not that those things are unimportant. I'm not saying don't be involved. I'm not saying don't be engaged, right? But I'm saying prayer is a corrective to us being sucked into the view that somehow if we miss the solution, everything is lost. And if we get the solution, everything is fixed. Both of those are lies. His kingdom is what lasts, not ours. So we need prayer to align our hearts with the true solution and to comfort our hearts with the presence of the true king and to awaken us to the purpose of the true mission. The true mission, the reason we're still here, believer, is to be representatives of Christ, ambassadors for the gospel. Right? When you read the prayers of the New Testament, the primary prayers of the New Testament are not about social revolution or political change. They're about the gospel moving forward into a dark world. It's about the church moving out and people believing in Jesus. It's about people having their lives changed by the love of God. Prayer awakens us to what is truly important and aligns us with the mission of God. So only after, this is what is interesting in this prayer, only after we have softened our hearts to God's presence, His love, and awakened within us a renewed desire um, to, to follow in His kingdom, do we then start talking about our personal needs, right? That's where the prayer goes next. Give us our day, this day, our daily bread. Now, now, after I've softened my heart and aligned myself with your kingdom, now I can say, give me. And I love how simple and clear and bold this language is. Give me my daily bread. This is what I need, and this is when I need it. I need my daily bread, and I need it today. It is bold, it is confident, and it's simple, right? I mean, it's direct. It's not 5,000 words as if somehow if I say it 15 times, God hears me more effectively than if I say it once. It is bold. It is simple. It's kind of like a child coming into the presence of his father and saying, hey, dad, I'm hungry. Can you get me something to eat? It is simple. There's no coaxing or whining. It's not manipulative or fearful or self-protective. It is based on relationship, not manipulation. It's the prayer of a child. Let me ask you something. What if God doesn't give you your bread? Because this is our fear, isn't it? What if you come in and you say, Lord, I need my daily bread. I need, I need, I need respite from this relational turmoil. God, will you break in and, 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 and bring reconciliation to this broken relationship? Lord, I have this bill I can't pay and I need to pay it. Will you provide the funds necessary? God, there is an illness that is wrecking me or someone I love. Will you break in and heal them? What happens when God doesn't give us our daily bread? That's when we go back to verse 10. In verse 10, we discovered that God has an agenda. His kingdom is breaking in. He's doing something really big. And most of the time, we have no idea what it is, and we can't understand it. He is God, and His kingdom is coming. And while it is fully won, it is not yet fully realized. And we still live in this age of rebellion and in this world of darkness where things go wrong and things hurt. And we all know the end of our story, right? Just because God has won the victory over death, we will still die. And we still feel the effects of our rebellion against God. 
individually and corporately as humanity. We are not exempt from the suffering of this world, but we are not abandoned either. He loves us and He is committed to blessing us more than we know. If He does not give us what we ask for, I think it is safe to assume it is because He has something better. What parent, when their child comes to them and says, Dad, I need this, what parent's heart doesn't go out in yearning to that child? What dad doesn't identify with the suffering of that need? There are times that we look at our children and we say, I'm not going to give you what you're asking for. Because it's not what you truly need right now. I'm not going to give you what you're asking for because there's something better. And it may take a season of suffering. But that doesn't mean he doesn't love us. Tim Keller puts it very, very simply. He said, God gives us exactly what we would ask for if we knew everything he knows. See, here's the thing, you guys. God's already shown us his heart. Right? He sent Jesus to die for us. (laughs) If he's shown us his heart, we can trust his hand. There are times when God will not answer your prayers, but it's not because he's not answering. It's because he's answering in a different way. Jesus goes on. Give us our day, our daily bread, and then goes on. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is a prayer that God will work his love deeply in us, so deeply that it works through us. See, we need to be regularly reawakened to grace, to be awakened, to reawaken to the forgiveness that we have in Jesus, not asking God to, to forgive us all over again, right? Not asking once again to be, to be saved or delivered, but to awaken within us an awareness of the work that he's done for us to its power and reality. And that it would not just work for us, like delivering us from the consequences of our sin and 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 even the the, the power of our sin, but it would work through us, right? Here's the thing, you guys. You don't earn your salvation by forgiving others. But if you have truly tasted of grace and forgiveness, you will forgive others. Grace changes our heart. It's one of the most painful and difficult changes we often go through. Not just receiving grace. That part in the beginning is easy. The extending of grace becomes much more difficult, but that's where the transformation comes in. And it's essential to the heart of the gospel, right? So what he's saying is is pray, man. You're going to have a hard time forgiving some people. You're going to have a hard time loving some people. Pray. Pray. Pray that the gospel will go deep, that you will taste so deeply of grace that it'll actually change your heart and you'll come to love people that you currently don't, that you learn to give grace to people you don't want to right now, that you come to forgive people that right now you can't even imagine doing it, right? Pray that the the fruit of the gospel grows from the root of grace. Pray that you'll experience that grace more deeply. And then he wraps up saying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Kind of a weird way to end the prayer. Why would God tempt us, right? What is that? Well, in Greek, the word for tempt is the same word for try, right? So a temptation is the same word for trial. And I think that's the sense in which it's being used here. Lord, don't lead us into greater trials. Protect us. We live in this broken world. We acknowledge that. We live in this age and your age is breaking in, but, but we're still here in the brokenness and in the suffering of this age, 
We've already oriented ourselves to look at the the long-term vision of the coming kingdom, but we still live here in this broken kingdom, in this broken world of suffering and injustice and unpredictability and pain. Lord, make our paths straight. Make our paths straight. Will you graciously protect us from the consequences of our rebellion against you? Will you graciously give us a straight path in a crooked world that reduces our suffering and the suffering of those that we love? See, you guys, it's okay to pray for quiet and peaceful lives. It is okay to pray that God in his providence and grace would would give you a measure of protection in the midst of the chaos and the hurt, that God would minimize our suffering in this age of rebellion. See, that's a prayer that says, Lord, help me not to lose hope here. Your kingdom is coming. It's already here, but it's not yet fully realized. I need you to be with me right now. Even though I am continually reminded how broken and unpredictable this world is, I need you with me right now. Will you make my path straight? Will you bring me comfort? Will you deliver me from evil? Evil here can speak of general evil, the brokenness of this world that we've unleashed through our rebellion, or it can speak of the evil one, right? Not just uh, delivering us from the consequences of our rebellion, but protecting us from um, the forces that are at work in this world that hate God and hate us. So it's a plea of faith, not denial. It's a plea that, that we're here and we have a purpose here and it's going to hurt here, but we know you have something greater. Will you be with us here? Father, protect me and be with me. All right, you guys, the early church was devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. And it wasn't because it was a duty. It wasn't because it was a job to be done. It was because there was a delight in it that changed their hearts. And I think when we really look at how Jesus modeled prayer, we're not talking about something we do. We're talking about an experience we embrace. We're talking about taking the truths of the gospel and going deep in those truths so that we can taste them and delight in them and let them change our vision and and our attitudes and our hearts and our joy. We need to be people of prayer. We need it. We need it, right? It's not just a duty to be performed. It is is something we need to experience the power of the gospel in our lives, to enter into the transformative work that Jesus has set loose through his death, burial, and resurrection. All right, as we close, I'm going to create some space for prayer um, and uh, put some reflection questions on the screen. Let you pray. (laughs) Um, We're going to share communion in a moment. Um, One of the great honors we have is the gathering of the body of Christ. Before we do that, Lord, let me pray for us, and we'll move into reflection. Father, I thank you that um, you are just so patient with us. Again and again, as I I look at, at the things that drove the early church and the things that should be driving us, Lord, I'm just so thankful that you're humble that even when we treat prayer as a duty, when we treat your presence as some sort of task that needs to be checked off or done, even when you're sitting there inviting us to a loving conversation, you're inviting us into an open embrace of grace and we're running from you. We're hiding from you. We're pretending we don't need you or, or we're hiding because we don't think we deserve you or, or, or we're trying to manipulate you to get something from you. Lord, you still love us. 
and you're still working to change us. Man, you are so good. Lord, will you invite our hearts to prayer? Will you awaken within us an excitement for prayer? Not as something to to just do, but as a conversation of love, as a place of intimacy, a place where our deepest heart needs can be met in deep and profound ways. Father, call us, move us, awaken us to the beauty of prayer. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.